Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we are joined by former WTA senior digital content producer and current editorial producer for Tennis.com, David Kane, to discuss the state of the union of American women's tennis entering the 2021 season. Of course, there are so many fantastic American women currently on tour. We have Serena and Venus Williams, of course, but Sonia Kennan winning her first Grand Slam in 2020, Anissa Mova, Goff, McNally, and Lee continuing to progress in their careers, of course, Pagula, Brady, uh, Shelby Rogers, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. So, so many different generations of American women currently succeeding. David and I break it all down. We play a game of buy, sell, hold, talking about a bunch of these women and talking about their prospects for the 2021 season. It's a really enjoyable conversation. And of course, we talk a little bit about all of the action going on in Australia as well. We've wanted to get David on the podcast for a while, so of course, it was really Really fun to get the chance to chat with him before we get to that conversation. If you want to hear the corresponding men's version of this podcast, Judson Wall joined me last week on the Mini Break podcast to give a State of the Union for the American men entering 2021. Of course, we played a game of buy, sell, hold in that podcast, as well as with Sandy Middleman to give a broader perspective on some of the players entering this 2021 season. So again, while we had a lull in the action, we wanted to sneak in some more off-season content, but of course the reason this podcast on the Great Shot podcast this week is because now we're going to be focusing on all of the action in Australia. Three ATP events, three WTA events. We'll break down each and every day's results on the Mini Break podcast. And rest assured, by the way, we're 12-8 and eight right now in our GSP Ace of the Day selections. We're bringing it back now that action is resuming on the tour. We will be starting here Monday afternoon with our pick for Monday nights, Tuesday mornings, matches, and we're going to be continuing through the week as well, so be ready for those GSP Ace of the Day podcasts to come back, and of course, the reason we are able to do them, as well as these sorts of Great Shot podcasts day in, day out, is because of the support we get from our friends at DraftKings, and look, six tournaments in one week, so much action to get in on, and you're the brightest tennis fan in the business. Why not take advantage of all of that knowledge with our friends at DraftKings? Here's how it works. You're going to go to DraftKings.com, create your DraftKings Sportsbook account, and make a deposit. From there, DraftKings will match your first deposit at 20% up to $500 after that, folks, you're going to make your first bet. And DraftKings will also match that with a risk-free first bet up to $500. Just go 
to dkng.co slash cracked open to play. See, I am cracked, uh, cracking down because I'm just so uh, excited. Cracking down, that's not the right word. I am breaking down because I'm so excited. You can hear him in my voice. Anyways, dkng.co slash cracked open to get in on the action. There's so much action. I'm so excited. That's why my voice is going all these different places. Anyways, if you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER in Illinois, New Jersey, West Virginia, or Pennsylvania, 1-800-9 with it in Indiana, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, or 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. Users must be 21 years or older and in a participating state to take advantage of this offer. DraftKings offer is not valid for Loca- uh, users physically located in New Hampshire. Deposit bonuses in DK dollars, which have no cash value and must be used on DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for more details. Look, I know that wasn't my best ad read. It's going to be better as we go throughout the week, but just go to dkng.co slash cracked open to get in. Look, I know that wasn't my best ad read. We'll get better as we continue to go throughout the week. But you know what is always good? The action available on DraftKings. So go to dkng.co slash cracked open. With that in mind, let's get to my conversation on the state of the union in American women's tennis with the one and only David Kane. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Joining us now on the podcast, he is the former senior digital content producer for the WTA. Made a bit of a lateral move. Now the editorial producer for Tennis Channel. Of course, a man we have been chasing to get on this podcast since its inception. It's David Kane. David, welcome to the show. It is great to finally have you. How are you holding up? I'm doing well. I'm glad that I don't have anywhere to go because my head wouldn't fit through the door after that introduction. Thank you for having me, Alex. <laughs> you know, I do what I can. You always got to butter them up early. I told, I tell everyone I come from the Barbara Walters School of Journalism. So, you know, I've been watching her closely. And every so often you'll hear the lisp of mine come out as well because, you know, it's Baba Wawa, uh, as we all know. So anyways, uh, it is great to have you on the show. And obviously uh, you are now able to talk a little bit more freely about all of the things going on in tennis. I know you are part of the Tennis Channel Tennis.com team uh, and you wrote a really fun piece uh, with Alina Vesnina. You got to talk with her a little bit about some buy-sell holding. Curious, I just want to start there because to get to do something like that, that had to have been fun. It ended up being a bit on the nose, given the news that's been coming out lately, I, I didn't realize how on the pulse I ended up being. But yeah, it was. I've had a lot of fun with um, with Elena and with uh, Daniela Hantakova as well. We we I probably will have more fun later in the tournament once we're able to actually really see how things are shaking out. I think Danny was a bit hesitant to sell, <laughs> so I, um, but I think. Uh, yeah, it's just a lot of fun and an opportunity to kind of analyze tennis in a different kind of way. 
Mm -hmm. No, it was really cool to see again to get to talk about some player coming back. All of these players essentially amidst a comeback right now, given some of them are coming out of their room for the first time in two weeks, and you see the joy on their face. I'm sure you are talking to players on the ground, and uh, I'm curious what you are hearing from them. But I'm also curious your perspective, because obviously this is the storyline hanging over everything right now in tennis. Can these players go from having to adjust from Australia's well, recent COVID protocols, we can, you know, I'm curious if you want to give your opinion on the protocols, on the the uh, the complaining, I suppose we've heard a bit from uh, these players as well. But just in general, uh, your thoughts on everything we've seen in unfold in Australia off the court and how you think it might affect what we're going to see with play starting now these next couple of days. Well, personally, I haven't really left my apartment much in the last year. So the thought of getting on a plane and having to do all that needs to be done under normal circumstances, I would personally want the 14 days of quarantine for myself (laughs) and for everybody else. Um, Speaking to the players I've been speaking to, I think the prevailing emotions are first shock, you know, the idea that, you know, for players who are used to this sort of circadian rhythm of things being the same from week to week, the cities being the same, having to deal with a new schedule new tournaments and having to deal with a different kind of preparation. I think that was a lot of what we were getting from them to begin with was more shock than complain. I think once it started to settle in the reality of it all, I think people started to realize why um, these these protocols were in place. And I think especially now having gotten to see the Adelaide exhibitions and getting to see the crowds and the cheering, I think it's really going to drive home for the players what it was all for, um, at least on a mental level. Physically, again, this is uncharted territory, having to sort of sit still for two weeks. You know, there there was a lot of um, hard and sometimes entertaining work done in these hotel rooms to try to maintain fitness and try to maintain rhythm. Um, I think it's great. I think it was a good decision to uh, sequester the hard quarantined players into their own draw to kind of allow for them to find their own rhythm in a different way. But otherwise, I think... It's, there's a lot left to be determined in terms of how this quarantine is really going to affect those players in particular. But in general, I think it was all for the best and hopefully will be something that they can shake off quickly heading into the Australian Open. I'm fascinated to see if a particular game style is affected more than another by the quarantine, meaning if you're Simona Halep, who that's not a good example because I don't think she was in the two-week extreme shutdown, but someone whose game is so predicated on her physicality, right? You can mimic that physicality in your hotel room. You spend enough time on the Peloton with the weights, everything they gave you. It's not going to be a perfect facsimile, but it'll be pretty close to maintaining physically where you are for two weeks. Now, for the big hitters, the precision hitters, uh, you know, and Elena Rabakina, who I think got on the court for the first time in 15 days, I'm not a fan of guns, but to have those guns in the holster for two weeks and now you're bringing them out it's like what do I do with this I don't remember like this forehand was a bazooka and now I've got to remember like oh yeah there's a little bit of kickback I got to be a little bit measured in terms of how I'm hitting all of these different things I do wonder if that is going to be a factor I don't know curious your thoughts on that I mean, it could end up being an equalizer in that the yeah. big hitters have to find the rhythm and the runners have to kind of have to find their legs again. So they, <laughs> and, and they could be challenged in sort of their both, both of their strengths. I mean, I think there's still obviously an advantage to being a, a strong Elena Rabakina who can stand behind the baseline and whack the ball. I think that might end up coming back faster than players who are used to getting that rhythm. But then also... If you are a player who likes to play long points, you'll probably get a lot of them to Mm -hmm. start with in your matches, and that might end up just allowing them to play their way into shape. I mean, we've seen players, we've seen the likes of Serena Williams come into Grand Slams on very little matches and very little um, 
preparation and win the whole thing. Obviously not everyone is as naturally gifted as Serena, but I think that it's not impossible. And I think that again, the way they were able to shuffle out the players. So you're not putting a quarantine player against a not quarantine player up against one another that fast is certainly an advantage. I think that's really where you would probably see a lot of the post-match whinging if someone if that if that arrangement had been allowed to happen absolutely I almost think it might be beneficial Uh, you're looking to get wins of course you're looking to get match play but if I go two matches and out I play the first match I see how my body recovers I play that second match just to remind myself oh man it's not easy to play two professional matches in a row and then that third day I rest I get three more days to train from there that may be beneficial to some of these players coming out of that two-week super quarantine just to again get their legs back under them I know people have been tweeting about it given Djokovic pulled out because of the blisters that's a thing if you don't play tennis I would show you my toes right now David but you'd hang up on me I played tennis for the first time in far too long it's hideous like it's disgusting and I don't even play at a professional level right and so you can only imagine you're sliding on a hard court in the Australian summer you're gonna burn skin off of your foot and like these are the little things that end up adding up. I mean, Hyun Chung hasn't been the same. I swear that foot blister of his has never recovered from that Australia summer, and it's just been injury after injury since then. It's just those little things, they start to add up. So that is certainly a storyline that is prevailing over everything else. But, I mean, with play set to get uh, going this week, you know, just curious your thoughts. What do you think we're going to see in terms of the level? And then just quickly, give me one player you're watching closest this week before we get into today's game of buy, sell, hold. What am I think? What am I looking forward to seeing? Well, I think, um, I, th- I mean, at least on the women's side, we're probably going to see some some fairly dramatic matches because we're going to see that struggle play out on the court of who can get into the rhythm fast enough and consistently enough to get over the finish line. Um, I think. You'll be you're probably seeing similar situations on the men's side as well. If I'm if I'm asked to see who I'm most interested in seeing, um, uh, well, first of all, there is the situation with Paula Badosa, who was one of the only players to test positive for COVID nineteen and had to um, serve seemingly an extended quarantine and is still in the entry list for the Grampians Trophy, which is the uh, draw set aside for those in quarantine so i'll be curious to see how she plays because she'll be the one who is um not only had covid most recently but also will have to be playing through um that extra time off the court um in general i'm looking forward to seeing how arena sabalenka pulls up because she has not lost in a very long time and i'm this is seems to be the moment where she is gearing up to that big grand slam run and i think it would be important for her to maintain that momentum in some capacity i don't think she needs to win and stay undefeated heading into melbourne but i think uh That'll be important to see how she puts herself up in good stead in Australia playing um, under very similar conditions that she'll have to for the first major of the year. When was the last time you weren't in Australia to cover one of these Opens? Oh, never. I've never been in Australia. Never? (laughs) So this is actually very familiar. No, at my time at the WTI, I was mostly traveling to tournaments in North America and Asia. Uh, Last February was actually my first trip to Europe for the St. Petersburg Ladies Trophy in Russia. And I was actually looking forward to doing some more um, exotic uh, traveling this past year that ended up not happening, obviously, because of the pandemic. But no, I've never been to Australia. So this is very similar 
and familiar conditions for me. Nothing's really changed for me heading into this this major. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Uh, no, we're, we're counting on your rhythm. We're counting on you again, ripping out all of these uh, content, everything for tennis.com. So hopefully for all of our listeners out there, if you're not already, go read all of David's pieces. You will enjoy them. I promise you. And, you know, that plugging out of the way now comes the hard stuff. From here, just disagreements. I've buttered you up enough. Uh, let's play a little game of buy, sell, hold with some of the American women heading into this 2021 season. And the reason I like to do this buy, sell, hold exercise, A, it's a great way for us to focus in on some of the most interesting players, but it also gives us a chance to kind of, you know, scale out a little bit and look at where American women's tennis is at compared to where it has been in the past, you know, five, ten seasons. And I just think you look at the nexus of generations you have right now at the top of the women's game. Obviously, Venus, Serena, they're still still holding strong, doing all of the things that they do. But now you have this generation of players, the Madison Keys, the Sloden Stevens of the world, the Ali Risks of the world, Danielle Collins, who are established top 50 players who have been in the top 50 now over the course of a couple of years. And then, of course, you've got all of the youngsters, most notably Sonia Kennan, Grand Slam champion, but of course Coco Goff, Katie McNally, Ann Lee, Amanda Anisimova, Cece Bellis, Whitney Osigway. I can go on and on and on. There are a lot of talented players. There are also the Pagulas of the world, the Shelby Rogers of the world, the Francesca DiLorenzos of the world. I mean, seriously, I think it's 19 American women right now inside the top 100, David, when you look at where American women are at compared to perhaps where they were at the start of the previous decade, I think you are feeling pretty confident as American women's tennis fan because the era of the Williams sisters is clearly coming to an end, but there are a bunch of really talented young players in the waiting, including someone who has already won a Grand Slam title, and of course that's probably the most encouraging thing. Absolutely. When I first started watching tennis was sort of the nadir of American women's tennis that a lot of the majors I was watching in 05, 06 were setting records in the opposite direction. This was the fewest American number of American women reaching the second week of a Grand Slam. There were none making it past the third. So in this past decade, it has been heartening to see this generation clearly inspired by and explicitly inspired by Venus and Serena Williams, you know, Madison Keys famously wanting to get into the sport because of being able to wear Venus's dresses. I think you're seeing this young, hungry generation and, and an, a diverse generation uh, coming from different ethnic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds and all different game styles, but all having this uh, tremendous competitive fire uh, in common and all having some fairly impressive major results, either big wins or big runs, deep runs. When you think of a... Uh, a Jennifer Brady, Amanda Nisimova just uh, in 2019, how close she came to winning Roland Garros before so Sophia Kennan even won uh, the Australian Open last year. So it's certainly the roaring 20s is, is alive and well when you think of uh, American women uh, heading into the next decade. What was so amazing about that 2020 season was, you know, for reasons both injury-related and, of course, what she was going through off the court, it really didn't feel like Amanda Nisimova played that big a role in the story of American women's tennis. And yet, and I say this respectfully, you didn't feel her absence if you were an American women's tennis fan. You saw players like Shelby Rogers making a breakthrough at the U.S. Open, like Jessica Pagula, who was quietly, I think, one of the 30 best players during the 2020 season. If you go from start to finish, if you want to count what she was doing during world team tennis as well as a little bonus, she was that good last season. And it's just... Again, who's a name we haven't mentioned yet? Jennifer Brady, who was the third best player in New York 
uh, during the U.S. Open. Like, she was the person who came closest. And Vika came close, too. But it was Vika and Jennifer Brady who came closest to knocking off Naomi Osaka. So did Marta Kostyuk, by the way. And that's why, she, you know, to see her do this well this year, not a surprise. But we can throw that aside for the moment, David. Unless you want to do 30 minutes on Kostyuk, in which case I'm here for you. Um, Feels like more <laughs> my specialty, but I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you run with the, with the American beat. <laughs> we'll save that for next month. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but, no, I just... I think in terms of buy-sell hold for American women's tennis overall, you have to be buying, right? They're the GameStop. Buy, buy, buy. Yeah. <laughs> but it's real, Abs- actually. Yeah, absolutely. I think that overall, as a as a investment package, I think you would yeah. see some very beneficial returns buying into this group, um, even if then even if they may not all be playing at their best at the same time. I think at the end of the year, we're going to see we're going to be still talking about. American women being very much a part of the conversation. Very likable group to the Christians of the world, the Taylor Townsends of the world. They're just there's a little bit again a different personality for each for each person out there. So if you are a fan of American women's tennis, certainly you are excited for this 2021 season. Let's start with some of these players and let's talk about uh, I think the player you have to talk about when you're speaking about American women's tennis, the face of American women's tennis, arguably the greatest athlete in sporting history. And of course, that's Serena Williams. And you look for Serena Williams. Of course, everyone wants to talk about when is she going to get Grand Slam number 24, yada, 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 yada. Uh, we don't need to have that conversation any any more frequently. You know, how many more does she have left in the in the tank? That is the biggest discussion. But even broader than that, you look for Serena Williams. She ended the season ranked number 11 in the world. She's 39 years old entering the year David and you know last season she it was you can't even count last season because of just how sporadic it was and she really was someone who you saw her so you know I think what we saw her play four times maybe five times in total during the course of the year but you look for Serena over these past few seasons I think it was four grand slams between finals between 2018 and 19 lost the back-to-back Wimbledon's and the U.S. Opens then you have what happened last season you buy selling or holding with Serena Williams in 2021 I mean I think selling Serena Williams is certainly a fool's errand I think you know (laughs) when you when you're at your most um when you're at your most despair when it comes to her chances of winning a grand slam, that may, that may be when she turns around and proves everybody wrong. But at the same time, I do count 2020 and I do count those, those particularly those two major tournaments that she did play because I believe that she showed up for them prepared and eager and ready to start making inroads on that all-time grand slam record, whether we consider that to be the be-all end-all between her and being the greatest of all time. And in many ways, I feel like that discussion has already been decided in her favor but for her personally that record is very important and so you i think you do have to look at those two losses to wang chung in australia and victoria azarenka in at the u.s open and in many ways even more um critically at the u.s open loss because of how dominant serena has been over victoria azarenka throughout their entire career at grand slam matches she had never lost to vika through many tough uh, matches that seemed like Vika would have the upper hand. Serena always seemed to have the mental edge and the tactical ascendancy over the Belarusian. So that was one that really gave me some pause. And even more so when I thought of that, even if she had managed to beat 
Vika, I would not have necessarily get, considered her a clear favorite against Naomi Osaka just because of the way Naomi had been playing in Cincinnati and the U.S. Open. Um, the air quotes are really great for your listeners, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> with the with with the way Serena has showed up, particularly against the game's best or the top ten players at big tournaments, Simona Halep, Bianca Andreescu, Carolina Pliskova. Um, Naomi Osaka, Angelique Kerber. These were the matches that Serena used to win in droves. She used to, I think she had some insane record of a winning streak against top 10 players between 2013 and 2014. That's unlike any of which you'd see in, in the near future. So I think with her, you have to hold because she hasn't made that extra step and maybe it's not that she's not coming in with that same momentum that she might've been in past years, maybe having been a reigning U S open champion. But I do think that as long as she is playing and as long as she is fit and as long as she is dedicated to this goal, I do think eventually she will get there. Um, I just, I, I want more data points that can make me feel confident enough to buy. So here are some data points for you. Uh, and then, okay. you know, I will let, allow you to reevaluate your case. She's played 81 matches and for the record, you nailed it. Anyone who wants to sell Serena Williams, ha, like, okay, uh, I've got some Apple stock for you as well. You can sell that. I'll buy it back from you. Um, but it's she's played 81 matches since the start of the 2018 season. She's 60 and 21. 60 and 21, and this is her age, you know, 36, 37, 38 seasons. That's... You know, and I forgot to tell you this beforehand. Should you feel the need to do this as well, go for it. We'll quack it out with a sound effect. That's f***ing ridiculous. Like, it really is just ridiculous how good Serena Williams continues to be. And you look at the underlying statistics for her, you know, there hasn't been a drop-off in her first serve percentage. She's averaged about, you know, 59% of her first serves are going in. She's winning about 75% of those first serve points. Now, that's off of her peak. When she was at her peak, she was winning about 79, 80 percent of her first serve points and we'll get back to that on why that little number on the margins makes the difference but you haven't seen a drop off too great in the second serve win percentage she's still around 50 percent there she's still about number 20 in terms of returners and return uh, percentage of return points one of the top 50 wta players and then of course you want to look even more granularly at her 2020 season 17 and 5 overall she won the title in auckland yeah yeah, you know, not the great, not the greatest results in the Australian Open in Lexington, but you know that match she lost against Vika. I think we all thought after that first set, oh my God, she's going to win this match. She's won that set six one. She's playing as well as she could possibly be playing. The thing is. I do think that extra 5% on the margins make a difference because, of course, for Serena Williams, what is her calling card? She has the greatest serve in the history of women's tennis, and it's not particularly close. Although I would say, and I've made this joke before, Naomi Osaka is now welcomed into the neighborhood of the elite server club. You know, Serena's like, oh, you want to buy a place here? Yeah, you, can have, you can't quite have the luxury penthouse that I'm in, but if you want to buy one floor lower, Naomi, we're, we're welcome to have you here. Um 
I don't know if Serena's quite got that in the tank anymore where that first serve is so dominant because I think you've started to see a little bit of diminish in her first step. And what is so powerful for Serena Williams was the big first serve and the big plus one ball. And it didn't always have to be a forehand. It could be a plus one backhand. It could be the occasional serve and volley, the swinging out of the air, ground stroke volley, whatever you want to call it, uh, that she hits so well also. And, you know, she still is pinpoint accurate with her returns and she's still uh, about at the same percentages return-wise as she has been throughout her career. But I think that drop-off from the elitist of elite first serves of all time to still the best, but not the elitist. It's still, you know, top top two server on tour. Because of how good some of these other players have gotten, that's where you start to see some of these losses come because you do see a little bit of a diminishment of some of the things she does on court, right? No more, no, it, never more obvious than the hard court stretch in August where, yeah, she made the quarterfinals in Lexington, but her wins over Venus and Bernardo Pera, they weren't pretty. Yeah, she made the semifinals at the U.S. Open and played phenomenal in that semifinal, but every win in the buildup to that was a struggle, and it's just... I don't know. The eye test for Serena Williams is why you probably hold where she is now, where she can still stay in the top 10. And will you see her probably in the quarterfinal, semifinal of a Grand Slam? Absolutely. But there are other players who are on her level now in a way they weren't, obviously, during her prime. Yeah, the standard for Serena is inherently unfair. I mean, but at at the same time, we're analyzing or we're holding Serena to the standard by which she holds herself. And I think those... 60 odd wins are great, but I think at the end of the day, if she looks back in her last couple of years, she thinks of the Owen being 0-2 last year at Slams, being 0-4 last year, the year before that. And that's that serve comment is interesting. I go back to that match against Bianca Andreescu, the, uh, the US Open final, excuse me, in 2019, and how she started that first game, cracking some powerful first serves, feeling confident. And when once Bianca started stepping in on a few returns, that serve really fell apart fast the double faults on break points falling down like something like six six two five one by the end of that by the end of that match before she was able to come back i think it's just that confidence and belief that she can stand toe to toe with the best in the game is not quite there and i think what was so what was lost in the auckland title was oh she has she's gotten these matches under her belt that match experience i think it's not quite that anymore for Serena. I think at these Grand Slam finals, the odds are very high that she's going to get another top 10 player, another experienced player across the net, and she needs experience beating those players consistently at big tournaments. When you look back, and since she came back from having a baby, you look at the match she played against Simona Halep in Australia, the match she played against Carolina Pliskova at the US Open, the number of quality, quality wins, or even Alina Svitolina, I should say, at the US Open semifinals, not a ton of high quality matches that would make her believe stepping into a grand slam final. I am the best in the world. And I think she should, she certainly should still believe that with the resume that she has, but I think it's, it's still getting there mentally uh, standing between her and this, this next milestone. Yeah, no, and again, uh, in 2018, she was ninth in return points one. In 2019, she was sixth in return points one. In 2020, she was like 22nd in return points one. So it's, again, it's an on-the-margin difference, but that matters when you're trying to go from 
quarterfinals to winning the Grand Slam. That is the biggest difference. And so, yeah, I would say it's probably hold on Serena Williams. You hold her as a top 10 player. If someone is saying, no, she's my sure thing to win every Grand Slam and you can steal a few extra bucks off of them, yeah, you probably sell it to them. But short of that, uh, you are holding Serena Williams stock through the end of her career. Uh, Let's talk about the biggest riser during the 2020 season next. It's someone we have talked about quite a bit here on our Crack Racket show, someone who is certainly uh, has expectations on her shoulders now, probably more so than ever before in her career. Of course, she's someone who won her first Grand Slam title during the 2020 season. She made the final of the French Open as well. Of course, we're talking about Sophia Sonia Kennan, who by every metric was phenomenal. During the 2020 season, you look at what she was able to do. I believe she went 24-9 and overall during the year. Of course, that doesn't include the run of success she had during the World Team Tennis season as well, where she was pretty clearly the best player uh, during that stretch of time. And of course, the two Grand Slam finals as well for her and you know, she wasn't playing her best tennis going into the French Open. Worth remembering, she lost a match 0-0 to freaking Vika Azarenka. Show me the list of players who have gone from losing 0-0 to making a Grand Slam the next week, and it's probably just Sonia Kennan. That being said, awfully high expectations for Kennan coming into the season. She's number four in the world, defending Grand Slam champion for the first time this year in Australia. In terms of Sonia Kennan, you buying, you selling, you holding in 2021, David? I think overall, I would be interested in buying. I think it's she's sort of like a short-term sell and a long-term buy, where I feel like we may not necessarily see the dividends in the next couple of weeks. I don't think that she will burn out or flame out in Australia when it comes to her title defense. I think she's very confident and has a lot of self-belief, which is important and very fun to see from from someone like her great personality on the court i don't just the the high highs that come with defending a grand slam title i don't necessarily see her in that conversation yet however the fact that she was able to make the french open final on a surface that she wouldn't consider to be her favorite coming off of a tough loss against azarenka as you said who herself isn't even that confident on 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 a clay court so that was that was a tough one that made me really hold back on her heading into the French, but the way she was able to battle through a lot of those matches, not dissimilarly to the way that we've seen Serena Williams, like battle through some of these ugly wins uh, in her prime, maybe not playing her best, but finding a way to turn these matches around quite impressive. Um, So I, I don't know if we will see her defend this Australian open title, but I think by the end of the year, I think there is a, a decent amount of space between four and number one where I could see her making some progress over the over the next couple of weeks and months. We still haven't gotten to see her at your Miamis and Madrids and Wimbledons. There's so many opportunities to see her tested. And so I think that's where she can make up a lot of ground. And so I think overall, she's a buy. I love how you framed it. Short-term sell, long-term buy. For Sonia Kennan, the linear progression she's made throughout the course of her career they're the standard you want for the development of any young star. That 2018 season, she goes 18 and 17 in tour level matches, plays all four slams for the first time, goes first round, first round, second round Wimbledon, third round U.S. Open. From there, she was a breakout star of the 2019 season. She might have led the tour in matches played. I think she went something like 
29 and 22 I have here from Tennis Abstract. Of course, during the course of that year, she made four different finals, won her first three WTA titles. I believe one of them came on a grass court as well, so a non-hard court success. And then, you know, last season obviously was was the big breakthrough. 24 and 9, she wins that Grand Slam title. Does it get much higher than that? That's the question when you examine Sonia Kennan is what does she do to eclipse where she's at right now? Is she someone who has the game to be, you know, a force a contender at all four slams each and every season? And the answer is yes, because of how well her game translates to each and every surface, because she has weapons, whether it be the slices, the angles, the ability to go down the line, the comfort to move forward. The big question for me with Sonia Kennan is how does she make things easier for herself moving forward? And you see that number in 2019, 71 total matches. And, you know, last season you add World Team Tennis in as well. She probably played about 50 matches in a pandemic year. She is someone, it's very Dominic Team-esque, right, on the men's side, who wants to play. She's a professional tennis player. The point of being a pro is to play matches. But her just it's such a physical game style and you look for her you know I think she was like a in terms of again these are tennis abstract numbers you ranking players in the top 50 I think she's like 33 in the top 50 in terms of her uh points one on serve and it's just like yeah it is every service game is a struggle for her because she does have to craft her way to you know four five six shot balls there's no, I mean occasionally of course there's the plus one shot she hits that slice out wide on the deuce side that opens up the forehand down the line and can do similar on the backhand side or on the ad side with her backhand the plays exist but she doesn't have that overwhelming power of some of her peers and so I just do wonder, it felt like every break kind of went her way during the 2020 season, and she put herself in a position for a lot of those breaks, but I just don't know how it gets better than last year for her, and that's why I agree. Like, do I think she stays in the top 10? Absolutely, because you can pencil her into the quarterfinals on any surface, but there are a lot of players who week in, week out, like if a Rabakin is hot, she can hit Kennan off of the quarter, like we saw uh, in Abu Dhabi when Maria Sakari is just moving that well. Kennan didn't really have a weapon to break Sakari's rhythm, and so I think that's the question for Kennan is, how do I make things a little bit easier for myself? And even if that leads to some short-term struggles, that will lead to you know big dividends down the road for her. I mean, I think... <laughs> In many ways, how could it get better than making two Grand Slam finals a year, winning one of them? I think if she could maintain that level, that would be great. I think what's most encouraging about Sonia is that watching her in Australia, watching her in Paris, you don't ever get the sense that she's redlining. It really did feel like she was playing within herself. Her technique off the ground is so smooth. I, She's not a huge hitter, but I do think she has some easy power, some good pop off of her ground strokes. I think the way she was able to beat a Petra Kvitova at Roland Garros or at Garbini Muguruza at the Australian Open, she is able to solve some of these big hitters and maybe frustrate them into some um, extra unforced errors. So I think at the end of the day, again, she is a player's player. She loves to be at tournaments, loves playing these matches, and has been able to push through sort of that sophomore slump that we've seen a lot of players mm-hmm. deal with after winning a major title winning that title in Leon right before the pandemic started so we didn't see a high high and then low lows if even if it's a dip to a fourth round loss to Elise Mertens at the U.S. Open that's I think she would she would take that in, in exchange for you know another Grand Slam final and, and coming off of a title yeah no I mean 
believe me, I drive the Elisa Mertens bandwagon. Most wins during the 2020 WTA season. She was exceptional. Um, but, no, I, I agree with you. The, it's just watching that Sviantec match and having watched as much Arena Sabalenka as I have the past three months, whatever, since she hasn't lost uh, her last three events, it's just those two have a gear that no matter how good Kennan is, and she can be so good at times when the variety is working, as you mentioned, the way she just kind of worked Kvitova to the corners and the way she just... Again, it's it's such an impressive game style. Okay. But she doesn't have that gear of Shviantek. Like, it just looked like her and Shviantek were playing different sports. And I know Kennan was banged up in that for all that passion. Of course, that's worth mentioning. <laughs> but I do worry, as she continues to play all of these top players, how will she adjust uh, to their level? Because, Or, you know, will she be able to match them if they're playing their best tennis? I mean, her attitude on the court is very relatable so i find it i find it encouraging that someone who can feel all that emotion and get angry at themselves are able to channel that a lot of times you see players not be able to handle that emotion someone who's so in control of how they're feeling and able to not um allow that to ever really derail them in these big matches i think it's been most important i think when you look at the french open final she did appear to be somewhat injured towards the end of that match up until that point it had been fairly close against ega i mean i'm admittedly a bit bearish on Iga heading into 2021 just because I'm looking to see her replicate that. Yes, definitely playing another sport than Sabalenka, who herself is playing another sport. <laughs> the three of them are playing three different sports while competing for the same trophies. That that's that is what makes this this game interesting. They invite Arena Sabalenka into Power Tennis Neighborhood. By the way, she's officially on the board. They had a vote. No, no, no. I, I got I reported on it. It was a big deal. Uh, Iga is still just allowed to rent. They're not quite letting her. They're like, we saw it once. We need to see it a second time. But just in case you want an update, I'll continue to update you. Uh, you know, throughout the course of the season. Um, no, I, I mean, look, there's no doubt Sophia Kennan, Sonia Kennan, in terms of her floor as a player, it's immensely high just because of how many weapons she has at her disposal. And I like how you phrase it. She's a tennis player's tennis player. She wants to be out there. She wants to be competing. Certainly, we are going to enjoy getting to see her do just that uh, in 2021. With that in mind, let's move on to our next player. Again, the rising star probably of the 2020 season in American women's tennis. She won the first WTA title of her career and made the first semifinal at a grand slam of her career as well. Of course, I'm talking about Jennifer Brady, who you look at the success she had during the hardcourt uh, run uh, she had last summer. I mean, again, just ripping through that Lexington drop. I believe she didn't drop a set throughout the entire course of the uh, of the event. And then, you know, yeah, she loses a first-round match at the we- uh, Western Southern at Cincy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but just the way... I mean, the power tennis she displayed, Davis, uh, David, it's it's quite clear she has the sort of game uh, that can just hit opponents off the court. She's in that Brady, or she's in that Sabalenka, Shviantek mold. When, when it works, it's just working. And so you look for her, 25 years old entering the season, number 24 currently in the rankings. You buying, selling, or holding with Jennifer Brady? I think with Jennifer, I think you do have to hold, if only because... Yes, she made tremendous um, improvements over the last year and, and the way she was able to really start from January with the win over Maria Sharapova to the U.S. Open semifinal, really uh, knocking out some really talented players to make that semifinal, and obviously first title uh, in Lexington. 
I think it's just a matter if she's able to replicate this at the end of the year and finish somewhat between 18 and 25, I think you would consider that a good year just because of how, um, just because of her game and just because we haven't really seen necessarily in the past that same level of consistency. I think, you know, uh, and the way she started the year, you know, with the loss to Tamara Zidansek and the Sabalenka loss in Ostrava, um, it wasn't necessary. And uh, naturally, the, um, while it was on clay, losing to Clara Towson at Roland Garros, there were some dips towards the end of the year. And I think she was, she did, a, it was very impressive how she was able to maintain her pre-pandemic momentum for the most part post-pandemic. And I think that's, was such, such a crazy test of all the top players and, and rising players. So I think, I don't see her necessarily spiraling. I think that she's got a good head on her shoulders. She's very calm on the court and is able to impose a really, intimidating weight of shot it's a different kind of power than than an arena sabalenka so i think that's what throws players for a loop my question is now that she's become more of a familiar face around the tour whether players will start to solve that power and solve that game style and i think if she can come out of 2021 on par i think that would be a great success for her I'm really glad you mentioned the pre-pandemic success because if there's a misnomer out there, it's that the success in August came out of nowhere, and it didn't. No. It was pretty well, you know, for those who are paying attention, it was pretty uh, pre. It was previewed pretty well. You, you know, the way she starts her season, she comes through Brisbane qualifying. She beats Ashley Barty and Maria Sharapova in that event before losing to Kvitova. Yeah, she lost first round Australian Open, but it was to Simona Halep, who looked really, really freaking good through the semifinals of that event. And even in her loss, I think she lost to Muguruza in that uh, Grand Slam semifinal. I, I think that's who beat her. Uh, she, yeah, uh, you know, she, uh, Anyways, good loss for Brady if that such a thing exists. She then comes through Dubai qualifying, makes the semifinals there before losing to Simona Halep. And then in Doha, you know, she follows that up, losing to Own Shapur, who I think made the quarterfinals of the event, maybe semifinals, but certainly one of the 15 best players during the 2020 season. Just Jen Brady, you could already see whatever she did last offseason, it worked. The forehand is an elite weapon. Her serve has the opportunity to be elite. I mean, I mean, you don't go 25 and 10 over the course of 35 WTA level matches unless you've got some sort of skill set that works. And I think for her last season, the big thing was obviously the jump in her first serve percentage. She was at 58%, which was the highest mark in her career. And she's winning, you know, I think it was 70% of her first serve points. She was winning 53% of her second serve points. And of course, when you're feeling confident, you can take a few more risks with that second serve. You, you see the forehand, the way she can whip it around the court. And it's not maybe the flat power of Arena Sabalenka, but the rotations on the ball, the way it just cuts through the court. I'm buying on Jen Brady. I just think you look at the course of the past two seasons, obviously, uh, you know, 19-9 and last year, and I think 25-10 and overall, if you include qualifying, uh, that jumps out to you. But she was 16-17 and the year before, which isn't that bad. And to see that jump, to see the changes that were made structurally structurally in her game and seemed to be able to stick. I know she lost her first match in Abu Dhabi in three sets, but she won the first set six love in that match. It was a funky circumstance, obviously playing in Abu Dhabi. I believe in Jennifer Brady. I just, I see the weapons. We're going to start off at the hardcore portion of the season. She's going to be seated at these events. I'm just a believer. I think the weapons are real and I think they're elite. 
I think it's fair. And, and again, it's it, like you said, it's a different look. Um, and going back to her mentality, how calm and relaxed she seems. She also seems to be a player who is not necessarily built for the spotlight in the way that Sophia Kennan is. Sonia really seems to enjoy the fans and, and, and interacting with the atmosphere. That's sort of the test that we haven't really put Jennifer Brady under yet. And, um, and, and I go back to the match against Sabalenka in Ostrava. I did kind of see Jen winning that match. And the fact that Arena did it, the fact that Arena pulled it through made me think better of Arena. And then also made me question how much um, we were going to see a letdown from Jen after the US Open. But again, yeah, I think I think we're going to still see some impressive results from her. She has that game to knock out big players, surprise them, and, and, and go deep in tournaments. I just, is she ready for a top 10 finish? That, that I'm a little bit, um, that I question. Let me zag there. Kind of like how business-like Jennifer Brady is. And that's not to say, you know, I think she does embrace the crowds. I think she enjoys competing. Well, it's hard to say because there haven't really been a crowd. So I guess does she enjoy the crowd? It's it's tough, but I think she will enjoy the crowd. She does just feel like a gamer. And she just goes out there and it's kind of like, look, I don't really care what you're going to do. I'm going to hit my serve. I'm going to find a forehand. And if I'm landing my forehand, you're in trouble. So... Yeah, I'm I'm Jen Brady, and I just beat you in two sets. Like, sorry. Um, And I just feel like she just kind of goes about her business. So I kind of like that about her. Like, I kind of like it a lot. There's there's no nonsense when it comes to Jennifer Brady. That was an amazing Jen Brady impression, by the way. Thank you. She was here. I I do what I can. Deep down, I'm a UCLA Bruin. Uh, You know, same colors as Michigan, so it makes sense. Hope all of you enjoyed part one of my discussion with David Kane discussing the state of the union in American women's tennis entering the 2021 season. Of course, we will be back with part two of this podcast tomorrow discussing players like Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, Jess Pegula, Shelby Rogers, the many young American women currently having success and so much more. A big thank you to David for taking the time to have this conversation. And of course, again, if you want to hear the corresponding American men's version of this podcast, go check out our mini break podcast feed where we are breaking down all the action going on down under three ATP events, three WTA events. In case you miss any of the matches, you can catch up on everything day in, day out with our mini break podcast. Of course, if you want to get in on the action with our friends at DraftKings, be on the lookout for our GSP Ace of the Day podcast coming back this afternoon. And of course, play along with our friends at DraftKings at dkng.co slash cracked open. A quick note for all of you GSP listeners wondering, Yes, Matt Stokowiak, Chris Halliorce, and I will be back to recap all of the crazy college action going on. That'll be a Wednesday podcast. We also are going to be heading to Stillwater, Oklahoma this weekend to cover the D1 Women's National Indoor. So be on the lookout for some preview podcasts. They are hoping to bring on Colette Lewis this week. We'll see if she says yes to my ask. Um, if not, you know, I'll drag Chris on. I'll get one of the usual guests, but hoping to spice things up a little bit. Bring Colette on. Talk to Chris Young of Oklahoma State on this podcast as well. So be on the lookout for that. Be on the lookout for our Cracked Interviews podcast we did with Bethany Maddox-Sands, who of course is in Australia. We talked to her about those conditions, what she thinks, the changes that need to be made to ensure we have a full 2021 season and so much more. Again, all that content available on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, we ask that you like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, mini break podcast, Inside Out and Sideline podcast 
podcast. I wouldn't ask you if it wasn't useful, folks, so please do it. It makes Super Producer Daniel West up oh so happy. And by the way, he and Super Producer Max Fligner, a about any job to do as always so shout out to the two of them the best in the business again you need the more immediate updates twitter instagram facebook youtube we are at cracked rackets you want to message me directly i am at great shot pod if you miss any of our video coverage go check out our youtube channel another thing that will make super producer daniel westoff happy is if you go check out our new series the deciding point you go check out our red zone coverage we did of some college tennis all of that and so much more available there but with that in mind, for our wonderful friend, David Kane, our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westhoff, our friends over at DraftKings, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot. We'll see you all later on this afternoon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.